you've got to stop trying to make make this place where you are equal something that you've known and instead let it be what it is authentically and and make something new with that hi i'm jessica and i'm girish and this is the destiny benders podcast where we explore the impact of international education on the lives of students and professionals from across the globe. It's a podcast for international educators, by international educators, and about international educators. And in each episode, we'll be meeting with destiny benders of our industry. We'll look beyond the job title and really get to know the people whose mission it is to change lives and bend destinies. Our guest today is John Wilkerson, Associate Vice President for International Services at Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Pleased to be here, Gears. It's great to meet you, John. Thank you so much for joining us on Destiny Vendors today. You as well, Jessica. Thank you. John, obviously, we've known each other for a long time. We worked together in your past life up Missouri. Uh, but, you know, let's start from the beginning. Can you walk us through your journey of how you ended up in international education and what prompted you to get into it? Well, sure. Um, it, it was mostly just a trip and a face plant, but <laughs> well, I'm, I'm happy to, to chat about it. I'll go a little bit further back than that into my professional career, uh, which started out in banking, and that was just a horrible mismatch. Um, I found myself one one evening on the 24th floor of a high-rise in downtown St. Louis thinking, I don't vote like anybody else in this building, <laughs> and uh, just really figured out that was not a place that I was going to thrive. Uh, so I took that opportunity to finish up degrees in psychology and sociology and then um, started doing telecom regulation because that was much more fulfilling. Of <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but ac actually, while I was doing that, also going back to school and um, working towards master's degrees in education and counseling psych. So always had that foot in the door in humanities, that interest in people and movements and motivations. And I started um, working as the director for a volunteer center, uh, Mid-Missouri Crisis Center, and they did community outreach, crisis intervention, suicide prevention, things like that. And it was that position where I started to interface pretty heavily with the universities and colleges that were concentrated in central Missouri. So this was in Columbia, Missouri, and of course, University of Missouri is, is located there, but so is Columbia College and Stevens College and just up the street, William Woods University and Westminster College. And so it was just this pocket, Lincoln University, this pocket of higher education, all of whom had some form of service learning or you know, community outreach programs. And that's where I started interfacing with a lot of their volunteer units. Through the course of that, I ended up working with a couple of the admissions offices and developing a friendship with some, some folks in there. 
And it was Columbia College who first approached me about a position in higher ed. That was my undergraduate alma mater. I promptly declined uh, <laughs> the, the position. Uh, really, I was, I was very happy doing what I was doing. I liked working with the students. I liked working with the, the program directors and, and so forth. Uh, but through a series of elections and funding cuts and, and whatnot, um, found myself in, in January uh, working through budget really difficulties with our executive director. And Columbia College at that point had come knocking again with a new position that really intrigued me. And I said, you know, I, I think I can kill two birds with one stone here and made the, the decision to hop over into higher ed. That position was an assistant director for international and graduate admissions, and it was a brand new role. Um, so was, I was very excited about the opportunity to really create something new, especially as I stepped into a field which I knew nothing about, honestly. And I found that I really loved it. Not so much the graduate piece, but I really loved the international piece and the ad admissions work was interesting, the people were interesting. I hadn't yet committed to making a career, but within a year or so of being in that role, I thought this this is something I want to do. So that's how I ended up where I am. Well, thank God for banking and telecommunications, right? I mean, <laughs> I'm glad that didn't work out because I'm always amazed at how people end up in our industry. And I think once they come into the industry, they just fall in love with it just because of all of the aspects of it. So can you tell a little bit more about what keeps you excited about the industry? I mean, I know admissions is a big deal, especially international. Tell us a little bit more. Yeah, I, I think that what really stood out to me is a stark contrast from kind of private corporate work, stepping into nonprofit first at the crisis center and, and then continuing into higher education was the sense of community around what it is that we do. Not feeling so much on an island with jobs that ultimately, you know, what, what have I done at the end of the day? I've moved a pile of paper from this side of the desk to that side and great, but instead found myself in positions where I was able to engage not, not with just other people within the occupation or the field, but literally in the communities where we were doing the work and and that was very intriguing to me, very interesting to me in, in my first step into nonprofit. When I then made that transition to higher education, that world just exploded. And suddenly the, the definition of community literally was the world and the opportunities to meet people and not have to know things that are going on the, in the world, but get to know them. I mean, of course, it's a, it's a job requirement, but that was... That was an area of interest to me anyway. So that keeps me excited. There is never, ever a, a year, an admissions cycle, a, a month that's the same as the other. Uh, sometimes that can have its own challenges, but most of the time it's enjoyable and does does keep me pretty motivated. Just listening to you talk about your background and how you got into international education, a number of the people we've talked to uh, so far for Destiny Benders have been international themselves, international students, either going to the U.S. to study or the U.K. And just sort of as a natural progression, they stay in the field, they make career out of it um, because they can relate to the students that they're working with. Now, for you, that 
doesn't sound like that's the case <laughs> because you don't come from necessarily an international background and you certainly weren't an international student studying in the United States. So how how would someone in a similar situation to yours who was looking to go into international education as a field, how would you suggest or what do you do to learn to relate to those kinds of students that you're working with, having not had an experience like theirs, nothing similar to their experience at all? How can you relate to them as somebody like yourself? And what advice would you perhaps give to someone who is thinking, well, I'd love to have a job in international education, but I'm not international. I've never traveled. I don't know anything about it. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And, and one that stands out. So, so many people, friends, family have, have taken opportunities to go abroad for extended periods. Meanwhile, I'm the lone guy who, <laughs> who did not, um, and yet ended, ended up in this field. What has surprised me um, has been the number of people doing what we do with a counseling or a psychology background. And when I think about that, especially when I was directing study abroad and there was a big emphasis in the field at that time, not that there still isn't now, um, but but a lot of emphasis on this idea of reentry and what, what do students and, and scholars and so forth, what do they do with their experience when they return? How do they talk about it? How do they assimilate that into their lives? So I found a lot of relatable skills in in that. Of course, at that point, I had traveled um, quite a bit. This was this was my late twenties when I entered the field, so it was um, you know not fresh out of college. It wasn't fresh out of anything. Um, <laughs> so I, I'd had those kind of life-altering experiences that required reflection and thought, and you know some commitment towards integrating them in into my life. Empathy, I think, is the key soft skill there. Um, being able to really understand what it is to be in a space where you are the outlier. You don't know exactly what's going on. You don't know what customs are, are on display or there's that uncertainty that if you overcome it appropriately, ultimately builds enviable amounts of confidence in in a person's abilities and and i think that that set of soft skills is key this is not, i mean not to sound cliche but at the end of the day you boil it all down and we're humans having human experiences and if we're able to empathize with that in a personal level then i think you can get to where you need to be I also remember when I was advising for study abroad, telling a student one time, and, and it seemed so obvious, but they were really struggling. And I said, you've, you've got to stop trying to make, make this place where you are equal something that you've known. And instead, let it be what it is authentically and, and make something new with that. It was a very obvious statement to make, but it was one of those things that I found falling out of my face and thinking, well, that was potentially wise. Where did that come from? <laughs> so, <laughs> um, I, I, I think that's what, and, and there's, there is no way, I think, to develop those skills without making yourself uncomfortable. So finding those opportunities to be with and learn from people, I, I think is, is, well, just generally a good good thing to do in life, but especially for entering this field. Yeah. So I want to dig into a little bit deeper on that, right? So I'm curious, when you were in college, 
did you have an idea or even before college, did you have an idea of what it is that you wanted to do? You said you didn't travel as much or you weren't an international student. I don't know if you studied abroad or not, but you didn't do any of those typical things that we see uh, amongst our uh, colleagues in the world. So what was it when you got out of college? What were you thinking of doing? What led you to that banking job? And then obviously, I'm glad that it didn't work out. But tell us a little bit more about that. Well, I, th- I think apathy and laziness is what led to that banking job. Um, <laughs> it was a great part-time teller gig that turned into a bizarre career path in my early 20s. Um, but I knew even as I was doing it, it, it wasn't what I wanted to do. There's there's that thing, though, that happens in your early 20s where you, well, it happens all throughout life, but especially your early 20s when you feel the need to prove that you can do this, right? I can do life. And it was socially intoxicating to, especially around peers, but also family, to have them look at what was printed on my business card and, oh, he's he's got a business trip to New York and now he's got to go to Houston or da 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 and think I've earned their respect. I've shown that I can I can do life what I but but I was obviously just doing it for them. I was I still hated my job. I hated everything that I was doing. The parts about my job that I did like were the travel and you know, getting out of mid-Missouri. I was fortunate that I have a family who's curious and I have parents who traveled and there were days I'd be sitting in grade school and mom and dad would just show up and say, we're taking the kids out of school early today because we're going to go do something in Arizona or, you know, whatever. And I also had, I grew up in a family that the doors, the doors of the house were open to any and all, and they were curious about people also in the same way that I was. And so we had we had folks from all stripes, all backgrounds, all all interests um, through our doors pretty regularly. And so this this idea of storytelling and, and hearing human paths was not pardon upon foreign to me at all. So so I think that had quite a bit to do with it and certainly opened up the uh, when the doors opened up for broader travel. I think that I was prepared to do that in a better way than maybe I would have been otherwise, certainly in a more meaningful way. And thinking about what you said to the students you were advising about study abroad and making yourself uncomfortable and just letting, you know, letting the experience be what it is. You're a seasoned professional now in international education. You've been doing this for many years. I'm not sure how many. I don't know if we said that already, but a long, long. Calling me old. (laughs) No, absolutely not. Seasoned, John. Seasoned. That's right. I'm I'm in, I think, my 17th year in the field. So So a long time. You're definitely a seasoned professional and you're well experienced. And and I do know that you speak at conferences often. You present at conferences, international education events um, around the world. What do you do now at this stage in your professional career where you've been doing this for so long and you're, you know, you have a lot of knowledge and skills do you still make yourself uncomfortable, put yourself in that situation to, to be uncomfortable, to let a situation, a new situation be what it is and learn from it? Or do you think there's a point in your career where that stops happening? It hasn't stopped for me. Um, 
It has slowed, though, and I think that's a that's a really insightful question. Uh, it has a lot to do with, as you said, experience, and there there are just fewer things, at least within the day to day work. There are fewer things that I'm not comfortable, you know, challenging myself to do, or or, or so forth. It's it has been a little bit more difficult during the pandemic uh, because I could rely before on pretty steady travel opportunities to remove myself even from the job and say, go, you know, do this thing for a day that you wouldn't normally do. Those opportunities, of course, are, are not so present. It, it's not a one-for-one -one replacement, but something that has, has helped has been thinking about the really powerful mentors that I've had in my career and what they did to promote that kind of growth and learning for me and then trying to emulate that. And so a lot of it is, and then this is a personality thing, is allowing myself to cede control, give up the chair, give up the room, let somebody else come in with their ideas, with their thoughts, give them the opportunity to try and succeed or try and fail, but either way, learn. And, and it, it almost sounds condescendingly parental, that approach, but watching them have the growth opportunities that I was afforded allows me some satisfaction. And, and also I've, I've been pleasantly surprised. And, and that, that is a recognition of my conceit that I often learn as much or more through their, their process than they are. Yeah. And, you know, I have to tell you, I have watched you do this with many of your staff that you've hired and groomed and trained, and I've had the opportunity to work with them. So I'm sure you've had a major impact on many people in the field. So I want to kind of talk about that because the podcast is called Destiny Benders. We're talking about destiny bending moments, life-changing events. So I have two questions for you. One, if you could reflect back on maybe one experience in your life that was truly life-changing, that really bent your destiny. And then two, talk about a moment when you realize that you're changing someone's life or some bending someone's destiny. The, the first, I'll, I can go directly back to banking in the moment that I needed to leave. This was June 24th, 2000. So, oh, bam. you remember the date? Oh. Yes, I remember. I, yes, uh, Mariah Carey's Heartbreaker was playing in my Nissan Altima. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was driving back across the river into uh, downtown St. Louis from Cahokia, Illinois. And now mind you, I was 24 at the time. I had a business card that said Assistant Vice President for Charter Consolidations and I had no business having that business card, but there, there it was. And I was driving back from a branch, uh, a, a retail bank branch where the manager had abruptly left that day. And of course, I, I was out there with auditors and so forth. And it was just, it was a mess. And um, my, my job was very much about fixing messes and, and going into problem branches and, and things like that, or, or working through a merger or whatnot. And I was, uh, I was approaching the Poplar Street Bridge, which in, in St. Louis is, it's one of those cities, you know, any city on a river or a body of water just has that beautiful iconic skyline 
all lit up. And I thought, well, that's gorgeous. And I looked in my rear view mirror at a crime scene that was unfolding (laughs) in the background. And I thought, I'm having a moment where I'm driving towards something that I appreciate and I like, and I see it for what it is rather than how I'm experiencing it right now. And I'm driving away from this awfulness that has just drained my soul. And I'm 24. And if I don't make this change now, when am I going to do it? And I called and left a voicemail for the area vice president and resigned and said, I, I cannot, I cannot do this anymore. And I immediately felt just a relief. I felt a release also. They didn't accept my resignation for a couple of months, but once I once they realized he's not coming back in, I think they got it. So so that that was my moment when I when I I think my life really did change. When I realized that I potentially was affecting people in positive ways in the field, I, I'm always reminded of this was when I was at Columbia College, so not not too far in into my work. I picked up a student from China, and it was at, at the airport, small, private, well-resourced college. We did that kind of, you know, personal touch. And so I drove to Lambert uh, International in St. Louis, and I picked her up. And, of course, there had been a series of flight delays, and it was, I don't know, two or three in the morning. It was just insanely late. And bless her heart, she was exhausted. You know, she'd been on how many how many planes for how many days trying to get there and um she was coming in to do our esl program so her her language skills her english language skills were very limited and of course my mandarin skills even more so so it it was a it was an exercise in trust i think for her but we were we were headed back on on i-70 back towards columbia and you go through, of course, once you get out out of the sprawl of St. Louis, then you find yourself in just stretches of farmland with vast skies and so forth. I noticed that she had started started getting very animated looking looking at the windows and through a series of gestures and so forth, I understood that she was looking at the stars. There was a there's there was one place one off ramp that I knew didn't have any of the you know those kind of tall utility lights that that introduce a lot of light pollution and so I pulled off there and allowed her to get out and actually look at them in the dark and she cried I I knew it was a moment I wasn't exactly sure what was going on I thought oh gosh she's homesick she's do I start singing somewhere out there from American Tale? What is what's going on? Um, but I found out the next day from her host family she was crying because she had grown up in Beijing proper and had never seen the stars. Wow. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, wow. I thought, wow, that's that was something. And it was very uh it was humbling to think that I got to be there mm-hmm. when that happened. Yeah, so that that's my student moment where I thought this is special, and and it it wasn't even about me. It was just being um, fortunate enough to be present when that kind of stuff is happening from this this yeah. young woman who is wildly brave. 
mm-hmm. got on a plane not knowing anything, and then she was greeted with, I hope, some celestial comfort. You know, that's uh, that anecdote is such a classic example. I think it captures the essence of what international education is all about and the work that we do. Right. I mean, in that case, it wasn't about a degree or it wasn't about graduating or anything like that, but just that moment and that experience. Amazing. Thank yeah. you for sharing and, that. And easily shared a shared human moment, which ultimately is what I hope we're promoting always. John, I know one of the other things that I've really enjoyed and I've cherished about our friendship, uh, you know, our travels in the past and everything is just your sense of humor. You have an incredible sense of humor, many times self-deprecating, uh, just just is, is a funny guy, right? How do you use humor in your day-to-day? It, it can't be easy being the associate vice president at IU, uh, especially with the pandemic, with what's going on with Ukraine now, what happened, happened in Afghanistan a few months ago, and this keeps happening all the time. Stressful, right? I'm sure a lot of demands on you. How do you use humor? Well, scientists argue that math and music are the two universal languages. I would I would disagree and say there is space on that list for humor. Mm-hmm. Really, so much of the work of international education, whether it's mobility, whether it's curriculum, anything that touches it for the past five years, at least, has been challenging. And I don't know that anybody could survive without laughing. If you can't find the parts of a miserable situation that are just so absurd that they have to be laughed at, then you maybe need a therapist. That's, <laughs> that's my, my take. But no, I think also laughter and um, humor, they're great equalizers. I'm not a guy who is really hung up on hierarchy. My Midwestern shows, I think, when when hierarchy comes on full display, and I, I find it usually to be at, at best off-putting and at worst antithetical to efficiencies and and you know the job at hand. And so I find that if if you can share a laugh with someone, then the footing is becomes much more equal. So yeah, it's it's uh it's all things. It's it's a tool. It's a um, sometimes a weapon, depending on how <laughs> how I'm employing it. Um, but also, I think just yeah, that it, it again humanizes our interactions quickly. You know, one of the things that we talk about now, I think it's been increasingly talked about, is access to education. Right. So we see the cost of education continuing to rise, um, strife all over the world, and trying to create more access. What are you doing? What's IU doing? What do you think we should be doing more? What should we as a community of international educators do be doing more to increase access to good education? And it doesn't necessarily have to be in the U.S., right? Just transnational experiences. That topic has played out, I think, at a very amplified scale over the past eight to 10 years, starting maybe with the the China bubble and the very rapid rise of uh, China. Chinese student enrollments in the U.S. And then looking at the foundation of that rise and, and trying to understand it was was very much about financial access, but also social mobility, which is an, an access in and of itself within China. And also understanding that China was 
and has been unusually transparent about what their goals were in tertiary education sector and the growth that they they hope to achieve and not only how they would achieve that growth, but also how how they would define it, assess it, what were the metrics, which impressed me always as having as much to do with quality as it did quantity. So not just opening more seats, but but ensuring that those seats in universities were of of quality. Uh, so, so to see the quote-unquote bursting of the Chinese educational bubble is not a surprise. I would hope that it hasn't been a surprise to many of my my colleagues. But I also think that we can look at China as a um, a really potent example of of access and what that does and and how quickly that can can shift. So to see what they've done and work at a public university. Although, yes, that that might impact our our enrollment targets and things like that. I also would be a complete hypocrite if I didn't champion their success. You know, any 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 country that's realizing that kind of gain in in especially in quality and access uh, for their own citizenry, they should be championed. That's that's fantastic. What we what we I think are challenged with now in terms of access is the homogeneity of the students, the international students that do find their way to the U.S. And that can seem strange given that, you know, a top sending country is starting to decline a little bit in numbers. But I, I think, you know, China's decline is a right sizing. It's not it's not a bursting of a bubble. India is on the the um, very much aggressively on the on the rise. And I think ultimately there will be some right sizing there as well. What most of these students have in common is socioeconomic status. And so geodiversity, that's that's great. And and that's something that I've worked at and and those in my teams have worked within my teams have worked at for as long as I've been in the field. But you can find students who have access to higher education from a financial viewpoint in any country in the world. It's harder to find the students who don't and get them abroad. So I think that's the next challenge for us with access is trying to uh, refocus diversification efforts to look more deeply at socioeconomic status and the impacts that that has ultimately on long-term social mobility, not just for that student, but you know we all know one student touches at least 50 other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, within their communities. So I think that's that's a challenge. As this has all been happening, the cost of U.S. higher education is just, it's it's insane. I don't want to get too far down the path about a rant about anti-intellectualism and so forth, but I, I do think the erosion that's happened in the public higher education sector has undermined what we do as a field writ large. There is nowhere that outside of perhaps a community college system um, where you're going to find tuition costs at that level uh, that that truly are largely accessible. And so we've stratified our our higher education, our four year institutions, and we've played into this idea of prestige and, and how we measure prestige and success as having to do with rankings and SAT scores and whatnot, instead of looking at who's doing the work, who's doing the work, where where is the recognition for the institutions that are being unsung in this and are reaching out and, and making themselves accessible to students that 
institutions where I've worked have not. And, and again, not to vilify those institutions that aren't because they're facing economic realties that have been placed upon them. And, and the politics are such that I just think that the United States is, is letting go of something that has been the envy of the world. And that's discouraging to, to see that dollar for dollar, there are very few smarter investments in the U.S. economy than a university in terms of economic drivers and, and social mobility and so forth. And we, we just seem to have forgotten that that subsidizing of higher education came with great benefits to us in, in social ways and economic ways in most ways imaginable. That was, I am, I'm sorry, a bit of a rant. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, that makes complete sense, right? Because, I mean, are we losing our competitive edge as a nation, right? Uh, obviously, we talk about it from a global perspective, from a U.S. perspective. Are we shooting ourselves in the foot by doing these things or, or creating additional hurdles or creating more barriers while other countries that we're seeing are maybe becoming a much more accessible educational destination? So, John, I'm not sure how much you know about our podcast, but we have listeners from all over the world, not just the United States. Our listeners are from across the globe. And I think when they listen to this episode and you're giving very much an American, you know, a U.S. viewpoint, it will be interesting. And hopefully some of our listeners will maybe feedback in the LinkedIn comments or something, getting their viewpoint on what you've said, a viewpoint from outside of the U.S. looking into the U.S. and what's going on. I'd, I would like to hear what, you know, those people have to say about what they see we're doing, we as in the United States are doing to, you know, our higher education system. What are you yeah. hearing, John, from your colleagues across the world? There are, there are quite a few similarities among the Anglophone um, countries that, that we hear. If we look at these as maybe a, a set of factors, then, you know, the, the factors that respectively vary from one country to the next. But there's, there's this notion that I think higher education has now, at least from what they've said, turned the, turned the corner on about shifting the models. Uh, I, I call it colonial education is, was, was what we did in the West for so long that come to us, we know best, or we'll come to you, we know best. And putting that aside and saying, uh, no, there's a lot that we know a lot about, but we have as much to learn from you. Um, and so this this idea of shifting from the sage on the stage to an, an actual meaningful and educational dialogue, I think has has benefited from shifts in student mobility trends and where they go. Um, you know, when I started in the field, the Netherlands was not on my radar at all as a <laughs> as a, a destination to look out for, or you know, the fact that China and Japan have have position themselves well in Malaysia's um, stated goals to do so. All of that is great. There's so much, the, the East-West conversations that need to happen are so deep and so overdue that higher education, I, I, I hope and think, I believe, is the best place for those to happen in a thoughtful and meaningful way. But the way that largely the West approaches those dialogues, I think, still demands quite a bit of change. Well, let's switch gears a little bit. 
uh, and talk about some lighter side of John Wilkerson. One of the things, John, I've always enjoyed are your travel stories. My travel. And you have, you have a few, my friend. Uh, would you would you regale our audience with one that is just a memorable? Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's so many to pick from. Uh, oh. e- equally funny, but insightful and exciting and memorable. I think I would I would have to categorize them from you know horrifying moments, uh, such as. <laughs> Getting to the top of the very steep um, people moving escalator and at the Eurostar station, only to see my luggage go tumbling behind me and wipe out a family from Belgium that went oh, no. <laughs> down like bowling pins. And all I could do was laugh hysterically and apologize. I, so that was a moment on a, uh, with with Belgium in mind, also having turned a corner and have uh, having found myself <laughs> being splattered with a, a waffle covered in strawberry such that I looked like a blood wound was seeping from my shirt and then being denied entry into every cab because they thought I was a victim. Uh, <laughs> being late for a meeting, that was interesting. Travel, travel uh, real woes I, I can think about is having to get from Sao Paulo in Brazil to Kuala Lumpur, where I was speaking at a conference, and the number of planes and uh, airports that that required. One hiccup in Dallas threw everything (laughs) into chaos, and then I ended up with broken suitcases and so forth. But if one has ever tried to throw away a suitcase in an international airport, one would know that that is difficult to do. (laughs) (laughs) Because as it turns out, an empty suitcase lying around in an airport draws attention. (laughs) I hope you didn't get arrested. (laughs) I I did not, but I I may have caused a little bit of an incident in the departures hall at Tokyo Narita. And then also on that same trip, once I finally landed at the airport in KL, uh, of course, I'd had no time to shower. I was speaking in 40 minutes, and that that is just about precisely how much time it takes to get from the airport to the central business district. And so I, I had dug through my backpack and pulled out every sanitation and handy wipe that every airline had given me and was taking this makeshift back while I changed into a suit in the back of the taxi and was throwing cash at the driver saying, I will double this if you can get me to the Crown Plaza. (laughs) um, That that was a moment also, but yeah, there, there have been many, I, there are a few showers that I've not broken. Uh, (laughs) A few curtains at Marriott's that I heard. Yes, you may recall. I, I no, this 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 was in Vietnam. I'm sorry, in Saigon. I am not allowed to go back to the Sheraton there. I caused a little <laughs> fire incident with an iron, and um, I've cleared out the Renaissance at the London Heathrow Airport because, as it turns out, when they say that you shouldn't hang a hanger on the sprinklers, you shouldn't hang a hanger. <laughs> I took down one side of the Beijing Hilton's electricity, and I'm still not sure what happened there. There, there 
Yes, there, there what you're many. saying is, is if, if anybody's looking for a travel partner, they should call I you. <laughs> I will say, I will say the the easiest lesson that I'm surprised it took it took me twice to actually learn was, don't automatically assume that a fellow passenger on the air, airplane is deceased. Um, <gasps> what? Uh, Wait, you gotta you gotta say more. <laughs> yeah. I was. I had convinced myself both times that the passenger had died. They had passed, <laughs> and um, in both cases, notified the flight attendant and the um, <laughs> the results of their approaching the passengers were not pleasant. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I, I you, you should have read a book, John. <laughs> Just on your travels. <laughs> Well, <laughs> I think I think if you're out there on the road long enough and paying attention, the absurdity of it all, you know, ev everybody has their stories to tell. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Keep it in in, in the lighter uh, part of it. Uh, we just want to have, you know, we we do this uh, quick fire round just to kind of get to know you a little bit better. Uh, we, we seem to have known you quite a bit now, but a little bit more, more than you ever ever wanted. To. <laughs> uh, talking about all these places you've visited, what has been your most memorable destination or your favorite destination? Oh gosh, favorite is is so hard. Memorable, I I think, is always Mexico City. Mexico City will always and forever have a very very special place in my heart. Not, I mean, maybe for many reasons, Mexico City will, but but the memory that I have doesn't stand out for any other reason other than just being a moment of complete clarity where I thought this is really cool. So quick fire question for you then, speaking of all of your travels, what three things do you always take with you when you go on a trip? And I'm not talking about laptops or cell phones or are there three items that you always have to have with you. I I always, I always, and Gary's will know this, have a portable fan near mm -hmm. me that doubles as a power bank, but also is, is a, a small undetectable fan is surprisingly effective in many situations. Um, I always, <laughs> always, and then this may be more information than people would like to know, but I, it's advice that I give our first time travelers do not get on a plane without one pill to make it start and one pill to make it stop. Um, and I'm referring to gastrointestinal. Oh, right. <laughs> the look on Jess's face was priceless. <laughs> you need to be in firm control of, of your situation. Um, and then I'd, I'd say the other thing that, gosh, there are a couple things. I always have water purification tablets. Mm -hmm. I rarely need them, but I have them. I, I, I live in constant fear of the zombie apocalypse outbreak. Um, I have a yep. whole process that I zombie proof my room at the end of now. Now, now your listeners are going to think, who is this guy? <laughs> <laughs> and, and finally, what's next for you, John? Ah. <sighs> Well, I don't know. Now that season two of Euphoria has ended, what is next for me? <laughs> I mean, we, we know that you're not running for president of the United States anymore. No, so I sure am not. Um, I think what's next for me is what's next for all of us in figuring out post-pandemic. Who are we? What do we do? How have things changed? What stays? What goes? 
that's, I think, going to be a, a lot of work and a big challenge for a lot of us. But God, Zooks, if we can finally do it without masks and, and walking around freely and being together, that's that's a challenge I'm happy to take up. Well, thank you, John. This has been so insightful, not to mention funny. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm in tears laughing here. So we really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much for sharing your journey with us. Um, good luck to everything you do, my friend. I've really uh, enjoyed watching your uh, growth in the industry and all of your contributions, and I wish you the best. Well, thank you. It's been a, been a pleasure spending this time with both of you. Thank you for listening to Destiny Vendors. In the next episode, we speak with Vern Granger, Director of Undergraduate Admissions at the University of Connecticut, and Chair-Elect of NACAC, the National Association for College Admission Counseling. Join us next time.